I'm Lindsay Berra, and welcome to Food of the Gods, a podcast that explores how elite athletes eat and train to fuel performance. In this two-part crowd-pleaser edition, we revisit our conversation with mobility guru Kelly Starrett, a coach and physical therapist who has revolutionized how athletes think about human movement and athletic performance. He has helped NHL, MLB, NBA, and NFL players, Olympians, and other elite athletes to resolve pain, prevent injury, and improve performance by optimizing how they move. But Kelly's input is just as valuable for those whose biggest challenge is correcting the poor posture that comes from sitting at a desk all day. Hey, Kel, how are you? How are you? I'm good. How's it going? Look at this little nook you're in. I have nook jealousy. Is this where all the writing magic happens? I don't know if I call it magic, but yeah, I'm up into the eaves. We have like a cape style house. Oh, I love it. I'm sorry. I was just on a, uh, I was on a call in New Zealand and the guy was, I couldn't shake him. So I'm sorry to keep you waiting. That is nice quite see- all right. It's good to see you. Nice to see you. And Thank you're you for having me. Scruffy face there. <laughs> you know, sometimes you just, uh, you got to grow a beard because one, you can. And two, I think the last time we saw each other, maybe I had a beard. Or two, um, I'm growing it because I'm going to be it, use it for my Halloween costume. And that's the kind of ah, game I play. Yeah. There you go. Are, is the Halloween costume a secret or, or are oh, you no. sharing this? Have you seen or read The Expanse? The Expanse is this great sci-fi. T- I am all about sci-fi. It is my jam. <laughs> I read all the sci-fi. Um, I think it's the best expression of trying to understand complex phenomenon today. Um, the Expanse is this great book series. It turned it into a great TV show and then it just got better and better and better. And it's on Amazon. It's unbelievable. But the coolest character on The Expanse is this guy named Wes Chatham. His, his character is Amos. He, his wife is Jen Brown of MMA fame. She's a commentator. He is a stud. He and I are mates and I'm going as him for Halloween. So I'm oh. going as his character. So it's like the ultimate homage to my friend who has is the coolest character on my favorite show. That's cool. And is he going as you? Uh, he could be a self-elaborate. No, he's much too cool for that. <laughs> you've, you've actually seen West Chatham was in uh, The Hunger Games. Like you've seen, he's ah, all over the place. Yeah, okay. I, I have to say, sci-fi is not my favorite thing, and but I would read the book series. I'd probably be more likely to read the books than watch the movies. I like both. You know, I don't know if you know this about Dune, the upcoming Dune movie, mm-hmm. but yeah. Dune is a little bit like the book Dune is the closest thing I have to like a Bible. Yes. Dune is like also more classic sci-fi as opposed to like new sci-fi, which sometimes but, I'm just like, I can't handle all the CGI. Oh yeah. And <laughs> for sure. So, you know, what I love about, you know, I think you're right on there. Um, you know, but Dune is super subversive and talking about, you know, deep ecology and, you know, and power dynamics. And I'm like, wow, I mean, we could take a lot from Dune and just lay it over our current geopolitical state. And it's right there. Right in the book. Read, read that folks. So, all right. Food of the gods. This podcast is about how elite athletes eat and train to fuel performance. And we're doing these gurus episodes and you are a guru. If I know any gurus as, as mobility guru, but you were also a champion kayaker. You've owned a CrossFit gym. You've done a lot of stuff. The first thing I do want to ask you, though, because I was trolling your Instagram, you just crossed a pretty big uh, whitewater bucket item off your list, huh? The Zambezi. Yes, I did. How did that, that come about? 
That has been on my bucket list for 20 years. We became Zambezi Aware in the late 90s. Um, and then, you know, it just it, one is that the river was just sort of popped up in people's consciousness as this incredible grade four, grade five whitewater that's warm in the middle of Zimbabwe, which is just bonkers. My wife was racing there in 97 and uh, won a world championship there and then was infamously attacked by a hippo on a canoe <laughs> safari. I don't know if you can see the hippo shrine behind me. This is the hippo shrine. We have lots and lots of hippos up there. That's amazing. And she, when I say attacked by hippo, I mean like the hippo attacked her canoe, punched the canoe, cut her. She went into the water, had to swim away from the, the hippo attacking the canoe. Oh it was, I mean, like legit crocs in the water. I mean, it, it was a big deal. So hearing that and then some of the paddlers that the Zambezi has created, just really world-class paddlers. So it's it's been on my radar, but to go to Zimbabwe, I have kids, a business, I'm old, middle-aged guy. Finally it came up that we heard that they were going to dam it. I needed to go run it before they dammed it. My wife being the, the greatest partner ever was like, you need to go run the Zambezi with your friends. So I went down and ran the Zambezi with my friends and we caught it at, I think it's what they call high, low water. They just started running it from the top down the day before. So it was big and pushy and it exceeded all my expectations in terms of, Oh shit factor, finding flow, you know, time dilation. I had everything I was looking for. We paddled 60 kilometers over two days, slept in the gorge. There's, you know, baboons on the banks. There's leopard tracks. We're passing small crocs that are only like six to eight feet on the banks. Like there, this place is so full on. It's the heaviest place I've ever been in my life. So anyway, I came out intact, had an incredible trip, and I feel like I'm like, okay, maybe I'm now officially 48 years old and it's okay. I can just like play Mahjong or something. <laughs> so if you had, this sounds amazing and it's been on your bucket list for 20 years. You keep saying you're 48. Do you think it would have been a different experience if you had done it at 28? Yes. And in so much that um, I was regularly taking bigger risk physically in my 20s. One of the things that happens a little bit um, you know, in our community, we, we were serious paddlers. I paddle on the national team. Um, we paddle a lot of class five rivers. Um, what has happened now is that I take my current risk differently as a coach, as a teacher, I'm vulnerable in other places, but you know, I still run rivers. We run rivers all the time with family. I just don't get exposed. I've run a couple of class five rivers this year, but this was a different challenge because the volume is so high. Mm -hmm. So it's a really different exposure. Like let's say you play college football and all of a sudden you play in the Super Bowl. That would be like the step up in volume in terms of intensity and pressure and and some of it's just unknown too. You know, you are you have to be self-reliant. And one of the things I really love about and have always loved about kayaking, and I started kayaking when I was 12, um, is that you're good as you are in the last rapid. And then you have to do it again and again mm -hmm. and again. And you're only as good as your last play or you're only as good as your last rapid. And over the course of 30 kilometer day, you know, the first day there was 21 big class four or five rapids and you have to be good 21 times. And so it's not like I nailed the first half. Like you still have to finish and sort of measure your energy and get up and focus and relax and goof around and focus. And it's really just an extraordinary it reminded me why I'm so comfortable taking risk in my life, why PT school I thought was a cinch, why things that feel really risky and, and 
tenuous and scary to other people feel more in the envelope. And for me, I realized it's really the promise of sport. That's what, why we should be doing sport, because it makes us better, more complete humans, more self-actualized through society. And this, this thing, going back at this age, was the so only thing I was concerned about was like, well, you know, can I hack it? No, I have never been fitter or stronger in my whole life, but I don't have all the touches. So it was really, you know, I used to paddle 300 days a year and sometimes twice a day, which is very different than paddling three times this year, yeah. you know, on some white water and trying, trying to work that all out. So um, it was, what's amazing is if I can think about how my uncle used to say this, he was a state, all state track coach, uh, you know, coach of the year, you say in high school and in football, you'd say in football in high school, you give the ball to your best athlete, right? And you just let them win. And sometimes I think in strength and conditioning and in performance where I live and work, you know, we think that we are really a big part of the system. But if you've ever been around really extraordinary world-class athletes, humans do incredible things in the moment, in flow, in pressure that are superhuman. That's, that's what's so inspiring about sport. And our job is to prepare ourselves or to prepare the athlete so that she can do what they need to do. Right. All you have to do is try to clear everything else out and take your conditioning off and keep your strength off and take your recovery, take your food off. Now, let's let the human be the best human and let the best human with the best strategy win. And that is super cool. What was really fun about this particularly was we red pointed the whole river. Red pointing is a climbing term where you just show up and climb. You don't scout. You don't know the route. You just kind of climb and feel your way. So the only we would get some information from our guide and he, he knew that we were good kayakers. We get some information, our guide would say, we're going to start in the middle on the left. And then you don't want to be on the right at the bottom. And also you should point your boat to Zambia. And then that would be all the, all the, the information we have. <laughs> and you're so like, wait, we, where is Zambia? Okay. <laughs> I asked that many times, right? And they're like, Zimbabwe's on the right. I'm like, what? <laughs> so we would get very little information and then we would be presented with a very technical class five problem. And what I think is really interesting is I like to see athletes problem solve. And I think that that's one of my favorite things about athleticism is watching athletes problem solve. So for me, I sometimes, uh, I of course love all the endurance sports. I think all sport is, is ex extraordinary and, and they all have different challenges, but watching athletes solve problems at speed in real time is really slightly different than knowing yourself at like a 2k pace. Like they're still racing. It's still all the same. I'm not trying to, to lessen the, you know, how difficult it is to run a marathon or something like that, but the problem solving at speed is a little bit mm -hmm. different. And so we got to show up and sort of red point. And for a long time, my friends and I have verbally said to everyone who you are as an athlete is how you solve the problem the fastest. Who solves the best, the problem the quickest or learns the new skill the quickest is our definition of the best athlete, right? Because it's the integration and expression of the skill, not a rote to memorize. That's why I've always related more to defense than to offense. Mm -hmm. Offense is we have a plan. And that's, yes, of course you're reacting. Of course, I'm, I, please don't take this the wrong way, offense people. <laughs> but defense is art and jazz, right? Offense is engineering. And those are very different mindsets and ways. So it was really interesting to say, well, how good, how able am I to be durable and be prepped 
knowing what I know about strength and conditioning, let me go ahead and put my money where my mouth is and see how it goes. And it turned out okay. But again, I'd have to go run the river again to find out. And I'd have to go run the river again to find out. <laughs> no hippos for you. No, less hippos, less hippos. Okay. That's good. It's always good to have, have, you know, fewer hippos in, in the day. So, so you went from competitive kayaker to CrossFitter to CrossFit gym owner to mobility guru to consulting with athletes all across professional sports and with military guys and with those of us who sit at desks all day and just have really tight hips. So how did all of that happen? It's, it's quite the arc for you and you've landed in this spot where, where you, it really is a sweet spot for you. Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, I was hanging out with my friend of who I met paddling when we were 18, right? So he and I are in Africa together and we had some friends there who've known me after professional life, like known me sort of also the, the, my day job there. I'm familiar with that. And they asked my friend, what was Kelly like before when he was 18? And he was like the exact same guy, like <laughs> obsessive, really needs to understand the technical aspects, always curious, right? Always learning and integrating and iterating. Like it's the same thing. I, I think I've been the same person forever. I just am one of the few people who lucked out and figured out something, was able to apply innate ability, pattern recognition to something I was obsessed about, which was how do people move? How do we learn skills? How do we have more fun? How do we do that more often? And so, you know, the root of all the things you talked about, you know, my mom is a, is a psychologist, father's a physician. I really think that people are what's most important. That, you know, at, at university, I went in starting medicine and decided that I hated it. My father's physician, grandfather's physician, and just hated the bench science aspect because it wasn't messy enough. It wasn't close enough to where people were living their lives. So I actually switched to geography and I was in the cultural geography department, which is really about human environment interaction. And isn't that funny that all these years later, I'm still like from 1992 now, I'm still in this environment, human interaction. And the thing that I am most obsessed with and is I need to understand how all the pieces fit together. And you can talk to my, my psycholo weird psychologist mom about this. For me as a kid, I needed to understand how things relate to one another. Otherwise, I don't really care. And if I suddenly, like, I really love to see the overlap. I love to see the interacting Venn diagrams. How does this relate? If we change this, what happens over here? The, the root of all the things you described are the body and the position of the body and its expression of that position. And when we, I came through at a time in the 80s and 90s where it was all about who went fastest and if we broke your body, we just backed off a little bit and hopefully we got further next time. And what ended up happening, that old model of work till you break, was that we broke a lot of eggs that didn't need to be broken. We left a lot of performance on the table because all we said was, well, you went faster on the clock, so that must be better. Mm -hmm. And that works for a while, but it doesn't really progress us into really mm -hmm. like tapping into what we're really truly our true potential is. And suddenly when we were as I came into this sort of more formal strength and conditioning universe, we suddenly started to see what best practice and movement was around gymnastics and Olympic lifting and football and, and soccer. And, and I suddenly was able to see all of the similarities and the differences between these unique aspects of sport. And because my, my mind came out of performance, because 
what I really started to appreciate was that performance and high performance environments are our test kitchens. There are teaching hospitals. It's where we come to understand what best practice is. So lo and behold, a few years ago, the, the biopsychosocial model rears its head in physical therapy. And physical therapists are like, it's not just about mechanics and leverage. It's also about the messy psychosocial, emotional animal that is the human being. And that we shouldn't just talk about pain as you have a, a lesion in your knee. Your pain is also about your stress. It's also about you know, how safe you feel. And then I'm also like, well, no crap, because if you've ever worked in performance, if we don't have nutrition and hydration and recovery and sleep and team dynamics and coach player interactions dial, guess what? We get crappy performance. And so what ended up happening was that we started to see, oh, here's what the best expressions of the human physiology are in women's soccer, in, you know, in rugby, choose sport, choose an endeavor. And it's really easy if you come from a multi sort of a discipline approach where you can suddenly see the places where all of that overlap happens. And that's the time of the last 10 years where we've suddenly had access to these disparate communities. And as long as we started focusing on the biomotor expression, how do we get the most out of the athlete the longest? Well, it turns out there was no compromise between what best practices were around pain or best practices around nutrition or restoration, sleep, meditation. And what we saw was that people had really siloed these disciplines and they failed to appreciate that they were all components of making and allowing people to go out and do the thing that they care about the most. And so I've had to become a little bit interested in nutrition because that affects the, your tissue quality and mm -hmm. hydration because that affects your durability and, and sleep and safety and loving and all of those things, because those are components to your arousal and your ability to go out and kick ass on a moment's notice. Can you turn it on? And then suddenly we're like, well, how does that apply if I'm 50 or 70 or 13? How, what problems can we start to solve if we take that technology, that you know, that ability to make the invisible visible to say, here's what best practice is. And that really got me into trouble with my physical therapy peers because they're like, it doesn't matter. It's all good. It's all. And I'm like, well, if you want to win, it matters. If you want to be durable, it matters. But what really got mucked up in that system was we were running a lot of, of our practices through this filter of pain. And that pain, no pain was the only way that you knew if you were in a good position or bad position, if you had a problem or not. And I ran into a lot of people who didn't have pain, but couldn't flex their knee, you know, mm -hmm. so then what, or, or compensating or leaving performance on the table. So that is the thing I think that unifies and allows me to be continuously impressed, interested in working with the people who are the leaders of strength and conditioning and human performance, because it is a living laboratory and all the best of them in the world are all sharing everything they know. When you look at athletes, I feel like so many, look, we all have deficits all over our bodies and that's your butt. And we're all, you know, functioning with De deficit is uh, maybe not even the right, right word, right? Because what we inherited a language, and I don't mean to decide because I want to get to your point, yeah. but we inherited a word of like movement fault. And I'm like, eh, you're working in a way that's making you survive as a human, but there's a better way. So, you know what I mean? So like deficit is well, I don't know, did you tear ACL in, in college? Is that a deficit? Well, that was a trauma or patina. We all have various workarounds that are solutions yeah. to solving mechanical problems, right? Yes, That's and have all developed some sort of compensatory pattern to make yes. up for that 
issue that, that you have. And, and it is, it, it is on one hand amazing because it's our body's ability to adapt to what it's given and to solve the problem, if you will. Right. Amen. But, but in other ways, I feel like a lot of athletes, even pros, you don't realize that you've gotten into this weird compensatory pattern. You are now leaving performance on the table. Somebody points it out and you're like, oh my God, I was this good. And now I can be that much better. That's what's amazing. Yes. And that's the thing that we have found to be the linchpin that inspires people. You know, I'm like, hey, don't turn your foot out and wear flip flops because you may or may not have an ankle impingement and create a bunion in 10 years. You're like, whatever. I'm the best in the world. <laughs> but I'm like, hey, I, I think if we do this, we can improve your wattage by 25 watts. And the athletes are like, show me. And then you show them and they're like, okay, I'm in. Right. Yeah. And so when we talk positively, and the problem is, and this is a problem, humans are really quite durable. And we're really quite fantastic. We really are like, you. oh, you only have one lung, you still can climb Everest. It's already been done. Like, you no problem. You can already do that, right? <laughs> um, you know, look at, uh, look at, let's take Simone Biles, for example, because it's very topical. Look at all the real psychomotional trauma and all of the baggage and all of the craziness. And she still had the wherewithal to go compete in the Olympics under that. That's how extraordinary human brains are and carry strong human bodies are, right? We've mm -hmm. seen people you know, compete and solve problems in real pain and, and blocking it out. So, you know, what we should be thinking about is not confusing the durability and incredible savageness of the body with the fact that that's the best practice because it doesn't yeah. hurt now. Look, you can run your car low oil. I don't look, people are like, I'm not a car. I'm like, I know you're not, but we need an analogy <laughs> here. So you can, just because you can get away with something for a while doesn't mean it's best practice. And because we don't have a lot of formal movement education, which comes out of our martial traditions, comes out of our weightlifting and gymnastics traditions, foundations, look at what George Hebert, the movement, he's the founder of MoveNet, the French original of Movement Naturale. His movement standards in the early 1900s would destroy someone on the couch. I'm like, oh, you're, you're a triathlete, just hit this French movement standard for the population. And you can't, you're weak. So- <laughs> What I think is that people have been really durable for a long time, but we have to match the fact that we're not set up for performance. We're set up for survivability. We're set up to, you know, to, to pass on our genes and to be able to be tolerate these things. But we have to start with the idea that the human brain is the most sophisticated structure in the known universe attached to a physiology that's equally as complex and some of the statements that are made that like it doesn't matter or it's just a technique aberration or it's a novel solution. I'm like, well, let's run that experiment for 10 or 20 or 30 years and let's see what happens. And that's the problem is that it's difficult for us as humans to say inputs and outputs because the, the, our behavior is so complex, our physiology is so complex, our, our learning, our, all those things are very complex. So when someone wins a world championship, it's almost like a miracle. It's like a happening. Like, mm -hmm. I can't believe that that thing happened in that moment. We should celebrate that as like the phenomenon it truly is. But simultaneously, we have to be able to say that there are some best practices here about being 100 years old because you're designed to be 100 years old. You're, you're, you're going to outweigh your gonads but you won't outweigh your knees, you know? And, and I really, I'm not trying to be like funny. Like we really are playing a very short game. And what we should do once in a while is just ask, well, how's it going? 
Do we have less musculoskeletal pain? How's diabetes? You know, how about obesity? How about depression and suicide? How about injury rates and ACLs in the NFL this year? How about ACL rates and injuries in kids under 14? Mm -hmm. I'm like, back surgeries, knee replacements, choose something you care about physically and then ask me how it's going. And then what I'll tell you is I'm like, well, maybe what we've been currently doing is finally, this isn't an outlier. This is an expression of the system because we've actually had enough time to see that if people don't sleep and aren't in tribes and communities, if they eat crappy food, they don't move and load every day, you know, lo and behold, this is what we get. And we shouldn't be surprised by the outcomes, but what we should be asking is, is there a better practice? And probably there is a better practice. So the professional athletes obviously have some motivation to really pay attention to this stuff. Mm, and, they're, for, and, they're, and they are getting good at it. Yes. And they, they are. And, but the normal folks, you know, on the couch, especially after the, the year of zoom and literally being in the chair all day, it it's getting tough, but you know, and I yeah. pay personally, I pay a ton of attention to mobility and flexibility, but I got to spend an extra 12 minutes every morning warming up because of how much time I spend sitting in this nook. Okay. So it's, how does a normal person assess where their mobility is just in their everyday life? So you are teeing me up. I appreciate, but Mm -hmm let's just say that we don't want to take a complex behavior as a solution to a complex behavior. Like that's a recipe for not success. Why do we know? Cause that's what we've been doing. Yeah. Let's just go back and say, well, what is it that humans should be able to do? Yes. Right. So we can start there. Well, we have normative values for all of your range of motion. The problem is you can be pain-free and not have any of those normative ranges, right? You can't flex your hip all the way. Your ankles are stiff. Can't put your arms over your head. And if you don't believe me, just go to the airport and watch someone put their arms up in the uh, in the scanner, and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about in terms of wow, we have a body that is not really a body; it's a demi body right now. Um, and so, you know, what we should be asking is, okay, why don't we have movement vital signs? Why don't we have movement minimums that everyone understands? Why can't you do this? Which would allow people the agency to say, oh, hey, this is getting a little tough. I need to go restore my position, restore my function. The problem, again, is that you can sit in a flexed position. It may or may not cause you pain. That's the wrong conversation. If your pelvic floor doesn't work very well, you can't create as much intra-abdominal pressure. You can't take a full breath. You don't have any overhead position. Your shoulder internal rotation goes. You can't rotate. can't turn your head. That's going to make your tennis sucky. That's going to make your <laughs> swimming really bad. But you know what? It's okay. It's your right to suck. It's your right. But let's not pretend that there wasn't something we could do about it if we gave people the movement minimums. And we haven't really made movement a foundation of health. What we've made is exercise physiology of foundation of health, which is you have to get aerobic exercise every day. Well, that's true that we'd like you to do that, but how's that going? We've been preaching that. Got to eat fruits and vegetables. How's that going? It's tricky, right? Vegetables will kill you. They're, they're, they're poisoning you. Fruit is dangerous. Like, (laughs) you know, those things. So again, if we, if we start with the first idea, well, there are some things you should be able to do as a human. But we don't, and and those things are built into all of our movement practices. Jump into yoga and you're like, oh, these people were serious. This is not a spiritual practice where you flirt up the cute person next to you in class. You know, that's not what this is about. It's not about, you know, did I get a good sweat? You know, that's not what yoga is. It's serious. Joseph Pilates was not messing around. He is bloody, savage human. And his movement practices would have continued to evolve. 
But suddenly, if you're into these complete movement practices, you'll see that there's a reason that the kettlebell people put the pistol in there. Mm-hmm. There's a reason there's overhead pressing in every serious movement practice, including yoga and downward dog. And so those cues are there. But then also, we should ask, well, what is it that the human physiology requires? So if I take a Matthew Walker, who wrote the great book on sleep. Recently, there was a quote that came out and he was like, look, if, if sleep was so negotiable, do you think that in the course of two and a half million years of evolution, we would have pared down 10%? Like nothing really is happening. Sleep, you're vulnerable. You can't work. You can't reproduce. You're not eating. You're just sitting there like your brain is doing its thing, right? And he points out that if we just took 10% off of that, 10% of your seven or eight hours of sleep, that would be a huge gain in terms of productivity of the human animal. But in two and a half million years of evolution, we need this much sleep. And that's because that's a non-negotiable aspect of our physiology. And don't get me wrong. Have a baby, have a deadline, jump on a red eye, be in a world championship. You're not going to sleep at night before. That's okay. It doesn't matter. But months and years of that behavior, because it doesn't seem to matter in the moment, is going to get expensive when we run that experiment long enough. We need to walk more, right, before we exercise. What my wife and I have come to think is that everyone's talking about what the best and fastest route up Everest is and what food you should take, but you're not even to base camp. We got to get people to base camp first. So, you know, sitting on the floor, well, that's super simple. Just answer your emails while you're sitting cross-legged on the floor or sit side saddle or kneel, or I don't care. It's long sit, just sit on the floor for a while. You know, let's get you walking more. Look, how about this? And this is where I see the complexity of people are like walking. That's low tech. Okay. So there's this idea in the body called mechanotransduction, which is shorthand for you have to load a tissue at a cellular level mechanically for some of your tissues to respond in kind. You want to upregulate protein synthesis and collagen synthesis? Well, you have to load the tendon if you want to have a strong tendon. You know, we're working on a course right now called, this is so good. This is so topical. It's called training the injured athlete because we see that physical therapy is an incomplete practice for like you go see your physical therapist for 45 minutes twice a week. And you think that that's going to be enough to rehab your complex ACL injury. Mm, Good luck with that. So we have to think differently about this. So if you ask for this is, we just Googled this. How do you treat Achilles tendinopathy? Very common affliction. This is what we get. Rest your leg, ice it, compress, (laughs) raise your leg, take an anti-inflammatory painkiller, then use heel lift and then practice stretching and strengthening exercises recommended by a physical therapist. So the first six do nothing to restore tendon health or load the tendon or decongest the tendon or reperfuse the tendon. And the seventh is let's put a medical practitioner in between you and solving a really simple movement-based problem or a problem that everyone should know how to handle. How do I know? Because there are millions of people walking around with heel pain who are not under the care of physical therapists, still going to go out their life. So that's the kind of information we're handing out. And what we feel like is if we can get people starting to load their tissues more, well, they're also going to start to decongest their tissues more. It turns out your lymphatic system, your other circulatory system runs along parallel with your, circul- with your actual circulatory system, blood, veins, artery, all that stuff. But that's the sewage system of your body. And your sewage system is driven through muscle contraction. So if you've ever jumped on an airplane and you have cankles and swelling after the airplane, that's because you didn't decongest. Now you have stagnation and congestion and swelling backing up in those interstitial tissues around your lymphatics. So guess what happens when you walk? It automatically takes care of itself. And wait for it. If you walk, you're actually going to accumulate enough 
exercise, non-exercise activity fatigue that you'll fall asleep. Boom. Now you sleep better. And now like what you see is that all of these behaviors come back to sleep's non-negotiable, movement during the day is non-negotiable, eating whole foods is non-negotiable, drinking some water, non-negotiable, feeling like you can chill out and feel love, non-negotiable. So let's start with the things we can control. This concludes part one of our crowd pleaser episode with Kelly Starrett. Be sure to check out part two. To take advantage of Kelly's expert guidance on mobility, pick up his New York Times bestselling book, Becoming a Supple Leopard, and visit his website, The Ready State, which offers mobility training programs for athletes of all levels. You can also follow Kelly on Instagram and Twitter at at The Ready State. Until next time, for more information on Food of the Gods or to download other episodes, visit us at foodofthegodspodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also follow us on Instagram at at foodofthegodspod or email us at foodofthegodspodcast at gmail.com.